Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And welcome to episode 14. 14! Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting, I think we're running out of, of things to say for that little, that little bit there. Yeah. We, we've exhausted all movie franchises that have not, not gone beyond 14. Has any gone beyond 14? Well, I suppose you could argue, with a smart answer to this, yeah. not the numbered ones, but franchises like James Bond. Ooh. And Godzilla, and all those kind of things have been running for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, you see? Yeah. But well, to be honest, if you were just to say uh, the name of the 14th James Bond film, I would not know what it was or give a shit. The 14th? Oh, no. It's a view to a kill. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> bode well. It doesn't bode well. Doosh, doosh, do, doosh, doosh, do, doosh. I can't even do Duran Duran well. It's not going to work. No. And if you're still listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> nice one. Um, uh, this week, I suppose the most obvious thing that's been going on is the release of Iron Fist. I wasn't as enthused about this one before I'd even started watching it. I mm. didn't really know anything about the character. Mm. I'd, I'd never really heard that much about the character before. So for me, it was it was the least anticipated one, especially as... They hadn't introduced him in any of the earlier shows yeah. the way they did with Luke Cage. Yeah, I think that made a difference because, you know, I think we know Daredevil. Jessica Jones, I think they did put a bit of an effort into making people aware of Jessica Jones if you weren't familiar with her appearance mm. in the Marvel comic universe. And then obviously by introducing Luke Cage in that, it made you want to know what other stories he would have in his own season. But then you have Iron Fist, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, I mean, I knew of him, but I didn't know any of the backstory. Yeah. And when I, you know, it was a surprise, and let's be honest, at the end of the day, it's an unpleasant surprise. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? He, he's the least competent of all the billionaire superheroes that I've seen on television lately. <laughs> you know who would have been a really good Iron Fist? Like mm. a really good, you know, world-class martial artist. Probably the guy who does... Uh, the opening credits, and it's clearly not the dude <laughs> who's playing uh, Danny Rand in the actual TV show. There's, there's someone very competent mm. doing Kung Fu for about 40 seconds every episode <laughs> in some weird silver silhouette, and mm. uh, it's not uh, Finn Jones. No, no. He, he he did get suspiciously better in one fight scene where he conveniently had a mask on to try and blend into a crowd. And, and and suddenly the the fights were a lot faster and far more interesting. It is bizarre. A lot of the fights are very slowed down. Mm. There are like punches which don't seem to connect with people's heads. There are very loud sound effects for some of the the non strikes. Yeah. Um, and it's all a bit too lethargic. I think maybe it's because we're used to kind of very hyperkinetic kung fu fights and things on TV um, as well as in film, but these are just a bit too watered down. And it's odd that he's the least competent martial artist of all the other characters. <laughs> he's supposed to be the most competent. That's the whole point exactly. of the character. Exactly. Yeah. It was a bit of a slog to get through. I mean, we did watch the whole thing, mm. um, which already has it one up on other shows where we've watched an episode or two and yeah. just thought, no, can't can't be bothered with this. Um, we, did, we did watch the whole thing. It was certainly not as engaging, yeah. I think, as the others. I, I still think that... I wasn't madly keen on Daredevil. It was good. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't my favourite. I still think that Jessica Jones yeah. and Luke Cage are, are the two best ones. But this is definitely... I, I would be more interested in another season of Daredevil than than another season of this, which I presume we're going to get at some point. Yeah. I think what was interesting was, you know, I didn't particularly like Daredevil season one. I thought it was really good. It was watchable, but it left uh, a lot to be desired, I think. It needed a bit more to it, I think, and a lot of it was kind of drawn out over too many episodes. I think, which is a which is a bit of a problem with these thirteen episode seasons. Mm. But what was good was that Jessica Jones came after, and that was an improvement. Mm. And then was it Daredevil season two or then Luke Cage? It was Daredevil, Daredevil season, season two, two first, and that and was Luke actually Cage. better than Daredevil season one. Yeah, and then Luke Cage, I think, was actually another step forward. Just mm. it was a different kind of show. Mm. And I think because all the shows have been getting better, it's kind of odd when Iron Fist shows up. And it's a bit limp. It's a bit... Eh, eh. It's a bit mediocre. It doesn't really have much to it. Obviously, we're not going to give spoilers because it's 
very re- only very recently. It's one spoiler. Nothing happened. <laughs> That's, that was basically what I was going to say, which is that by the end of it, I wasn't actually sure how different anything was to how it was at the yeah. beginning of it. Obviously, some things had happened, but in the grand scheme of things, I was like, well, so what? what? Mm, yeah. I mean, appropriately for Netflix, it could have actually been a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it's... You know, it's a competently made show, but we kind of expect more now. Yeah. And I think there are some clear problems in the... Well, firstly, the actual story, I think, is not that engaging. Um, it's kind of meant to be an origin, but it moves very quickly away from being an origin story to establish what you hope is the real meat of the series. Mm. But the origin feels really undercooked. There's no moment when he transitions from being uh, a character who's disappeared for 15 years, turns up in America. Uh, there's no moment when he has any kind of fish out of water thing. And, you know, when he's returned to uh, the US after so long, there's, n- there's nothing there. He just kind of does some kung fu and then he immediately gets back into the company his father used to own. It all kind of moves a bit haphazardly. You know, yeah. there, are, there are fits and spurts in, in the action and then there are bits where nothing happens. There are episodes where nothing really important happens. For a show that is, to a great extent, about corporate espionage or the way that big companies run or that, that kind of thing, they didn't seem to have much of a grasp of how corporate governance actually works to the extent that things would be decided by directors and or shareholders at the point where the plot required it rather than anything resembling reality. I know you can't expect reality from a superhero show, but to a certain extent, things should at least make sense. Yeah, it's written by people who have learnt things from other TV shows. <laughs> um, and I think the one like fundamental problem is that it's a bit cliche, the whole thing. Mm. They're not doing anything new with this storyline. And you know the dialogue is very cliche. You can see all the plot points a mile off. It just doesn't seem to have much going for it. It seems very rushed. Mm. And you just wish that maybe they'd taken a bit more time and thought about it a little bit more. On the plus side, I think some of the supporting cast are actually quite good. Mm. So yeah, uh, um, Colleen is really good. Yeah, you know, it makes a big difference because to have somebody who is competent and can act on screen, <laughs> um, you know, it really shows up. The lead actor who kind of just looks a bit like he's floating around looking for something to do. He's trying to work out what accent he's going to do, mm. and he needs. He's always trying not to shout in case he reveals his real a- uh, accent. <laughs> Which is always frustrating. Yeah, Carrie Ann Moss steals most of the scene she turns up for. Mm. Same with Rosario D- uh, Dawson yeah. as Claire. I think. Yeah. So to have these linking people come in, those are the bits which really perk it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, you start to see the connections that are going to bring characters together for the Defenders series, which I still have high hopes for, because so much is going to ride on getting that series right that. I'm hoping they're going to put a bit more effort into it. I read an interview with um, uh, Finn Jones Mm. in which he said that they were talking about the um, training regime and things like that. And he he basically said that there were times when the the shooting schedule was so tight that he was being taught the fight choreography 15 minutes before they were filming the scene. And you're in a bit of a pickle when that happens because there's not very much you can do that's (laughs) going to make it look that good when you've been given a quarter of an hour to learn the choreography and prepare and that might explain why some of it looked a bit slow Mm. because he was still just trying to figure out where he was supposed to put his fist he certainly wasn't the world's greatest martial artist (laughs) you you do think that there there must have been a lot of actors out there who already knew a reasonable amount of martial arts who you could have gone out and hired and would have been perfectly good. Because if if you're going to hire someone to play a role where the whole point of it is that they are such a good fighter, it doesn't even have to be someone who's world champion or something, just someone who has done it before and who who would already have the basics. And It reminds me of a lot of the uh, fighting that took place in Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> Not the game, but the film. That's what it looks like. It looks like all the fake kung fu that uh, uh, Raul Julia did as, as Bison, <laughs> which was just a mess. It was, exa- it was exactly that kind of clunky fighting style, which you can probably do at home in your living room when no one's around. Mm. Uh, 
but you can't do it on screen. It's a bit ridiculous. But we did finish it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, we, we did finish it. <laughs> Which is it. a plus. <laughs> um, and we've been a lot more ruthless about shows lately yeah. where if we've tried them and they've really been terrible, we've just ditched them. Yeah. So it, it, it did keep us through to the end. And I think it's probably worth watching if you're invested in that whole universe and you want to see how it's all going to come together in The Defenders. But from one Netflix show to, uh, well, a CW show, which airs over here on Netflix. Yeah. It's the return of one of our favourite current things on TV, mm-hmm. which is iZombies. Yay! Woo! Which is returning in uh, a few days, actually, to Netflix. Season three is starting. It's airing, I think, a day behind the US here. Yeah. And uh, with great fanfare, we thought, you know what? We love iZombie. Mm-hmm. And so uh, let's talk about it today. Zombie season three is starting up any day now on, Netflix. Yay. on Netflix in the UK. In the US, it's on CW. Yeah. I think Netflix is showing it in a few other countries as well. So hopefully, wherever you are, uh, there's a way of watching iZombie because it is awesome. In the UK, Netflix only put seasons one and two up last year, so we've we've come quite new to this. It's it's been running in the US for a couple of years now on the CW. It's made by Rob Thomas and Diane Ruggiero Wright. And if those names are familiar, it could be that you've watched Veronica Mars, because they were the same people behind Veronica Mars. And if you love Veronica Mars, you'll be in very familiar territory with iZombie. Um, It's just as funny, just as smart, very clever show. It's an adaptation of a comic book by Chris Robertson and Michael Alred that was on Vertigo. Um, It ran from 2010 to 2012. It, it very much takes the concept from the comic as a jumping off point and does its own thing with the idea. It, it's it's definitely nothing like a direct adaptation. Yeah. So if you've read the comic, it's not the same story, but there are a lot of familiar aspects in it. It, it does its own thing with the idea. Yeah. I mean, most notably, uh, Michael Aldred, who is the artist, he does the, the scene transitions uh, in between... Um, portions of uh, iZombie as well. Yeah, so a lot of the cuts between scenes, it, it begins with a sort of sketched comic book-esque version of the shot that the scene begins yeah. with and a, a sort of witty caption uh, that takes us into it. A lot of puns. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> zombie puns. There's some good puns in this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the episode titles are puns as well. And I love the, that there are a lot of businesses that are involved in this in some way businesses that are run by characters businesses that are involved in these conspiracies and every business just has an awesome pun name shady plots yeah so it's a funeral home called shady plots where there is plotting going on that is definitely shady (laughs) there's a a private military contractor called fillmore graves (laughs) it's kind of funny because i think they kind of sound like uh the names that uh, Bart Simpson used to use when he called up most having <laughs> but you know anyway yeah it makes us laugh <laughs> <laughs> so the general sort of concept of the show is about this uh, woman called Liv Moore Aha. yeah <laughs> some good name puns as well she uh, was a doctor and her life was going brilliantly. She had a wonderful fiancé, great life, great career, great future. Until she goes to a party one night and there's a zombie outbreak and she gets scratched and wakes up the next morning with an appetite for human brains. Brains. Yeah, so what do you do in that situation when you're a doctor? You go get a job at the local morgue as a medical examiner where you can have convenient access to brains whenever you need them. So much to the dismay of her family and friends who don't understand why she's suddenly taken this strange turn, her hair's turned completely white, um, she looks like uh, a, a bit of a goth, I suppose. They think that these are intentional style choices, but they're <laughs> definitely not. And she's gone to work in the morgue. 
So they think that she's uh, kind of losing a little bit, but really she's just trying to keep herself from uh, going all George Romero on people and uh, eating the brains of the living by keeping herself going by eating the brains of the dead. Or rather going, well, Romero, because she's not actually turning to George Romero. (laughs) That'd be be quite a dull show (laughs) where she uh, gets bitten or scratched and turns into a relatively short, beardy, bespectacled man uh, who hasn't made a good film in about 15 years. Mm. (laughs) Maybe that could be a a future plot point where a, a, a filmmaker of zombie films gets brought into the morgue and she has to eat his brains. And takes on his personality. And she would actually go full George Romero. <laughs> she would. She would. Because this is what happens when she or any other zombie eats brains: is that they start getting the memories and personality traits of the person they've just eaten. And it's a temporary thing. As soon as they eat another brain, things will change. But while they're on a particular brain, they might suddenly find they have incredible artistic talent or a thirst for dangerous sports or whatever it is that the, the person had. So that the whole show is underpinned by this really fantastic central performance from Rose McIver, who plays Liv Moore, where she almost has to be a different version of her own character every week, and yet for it to still be her. It's it's very, very clear. It's very good. And she's very, very funny. Mm. It's an incredibly funny show. Very good timing, yeah. I think, in this. There's a lot of... You know, it never becomes too farcical or, or whimsical. It's really tightly written and really well performed. Mm. I think it really helps to have such a good ensemble on screen. So yeah. so although she's the main person, there are lots of really, really well-drawn, rich sort of supporting characters in it. And um, I think as an ensemble it works. They're all, But they all work together. They all play off each other really well. They all have some really good interactions. And I think what's really interesting about it is to get this premise working, there's this element that she is completely disgusted with herself, mm-hmm. you know, for being a zombie. She doesn't, you know, although she has this craving for brains because she's turned into a zombie, it's a purely instinctive thing. It, You know, she's still herself to an extent and is able to understand it's a disgusting thing to want to do. Yeah. And... So in her role uh, in the morgue, she has decided that she can kind of rationalise this behaviour or at least feel that it's doing something good by using these skills she has, which are to have visions of uh, recently sort of murdered victims, etc., to help uh, solve their murders. Yeah. So the, there's a detective in the homicide department called Clive Babineau who thinks that she is psychic because she has these visions, which can't be explained because he doesn't know that zombies exist, there has to be some explanation for the fact that she knows things about the murder victims that, that can't be explained. And her boss at the morgue, Ravi, who at the beginning is the only person who knows she's a zombie, he tells Clive that she is psychic. And Clive believes this because what other explanation can there be? He doesn't believe it at first, he's very sceptical at first, but once she starts coming out with some information that was would have just been utterly impossible to know if you went either psychic or a brain-eating zombie. He becomes convinced that she is psychic and starts taking her out on cases, trying to get her to, to help have vision solve the murders. And so you get this double act happening between them that is the heart of the procedural aspect of the show. And it's very much not just a, a procedural case of the week show, although there is usually a case of the week, it's so much more layered than a lot of those other genre shows. Because it's become a bit of a cliche over the last 10 years that you get these shows where you have a, a streetwise female detective and a man who is not a police officer but has some special skill. Yeah, like the mentalist and yeah. just recently Lucifer. and Yeah, yeah um castle oh god that's one of the worst offenders (laughs) there's there's loads of them around and it's it's become so ridiculous that when they start when they announced they were doing lucifer in that way we just thought that's that's absurd of all the comics that you could adapt and you turn it into that kind of procedural it it was it was ridiculous but it's a formula that seems to work and get rating so they like to just keep churning this crap out yeah um i think what's nice is that with i zombie like you say, I mean, it, it could very well be considered a procedural show. 
but it completely flips it on its head. Yeah. So you, it it flips it in a very obvious way in that you've got a male detective and a female character who has some weird skill, and then you add the, it's not really supernatural element because it's there isn't a supernatural explanation. It's the explanation is that she's got the zombie virus and this is what happens. So, I mean, so yeah, it's you fantastical, to, but it's not. Yeah, no. you suspend disbelief that it's possible and you just go with it. And it, it adds an, an extra dimension of making every case interesting because she takes on the personality traits of the murder victim. So it could be someone who was an obsessive stalker or a compulsive liar or a frat house boy. And she becomes kind of half that person while remaining herself and so you you get the humor that comes from her trying to interact with Clive when he's becoming increasingly exasperated with the way that she's behaving Um, and he eventually does start to see hey you know what she takes on the personality of the people that we're investigating not because he thinks she's a zombie but he thinks it's some kind of psychic thing. So I think that's a really good example of how the characters in this show are actually really intelligent. Yeah. You know, they do learn things about each other as the episodes go on. It's not like uh, they will be perpetually the same characters they are when they first come together. It's clear that, you know, if somebody is working alongside somebody like Liv Moore, who's helping solve uh, solve cases the way that she does, Mm. with the accuracy that she does, and with the change in personality as well. I think some shows would be really dull and they just keep that as the formula every week. In this, he clearly is starting to realise that something is not right. But there's this weird frustration with him not being able to put his finger on it, but constantly kind of confused as to what the basis of it is. And even that state doesn't really persist for the whole run so Mm. far. Because ultimately he gets more and more information that allows him to develop as a character and and think, you know, what would a smart cop who is able to be around these people all the time, I mean, what would he eventually figure out? Yeah. And it basically says, well, you know, he's not stupid. You know, he is (laughs) going to eventually work out what's going on. It may seem weird and he'll need evidence to, you know, to support it. But he, you know, he changes as a character. He starts to think, you know, this is what's actually going on. Mm. And the the rest of the supporting cast, you've got Ravi who is the sort of head um, guy at the morgue where she works. So they work together all the time. They're they're stuck together in the morgue a lot of the time. And he figures it out immediately (laughs) that she is a zombie. Like episode one, scene two level immediately. Because he knows that something weird happened at that party. Um, He's seen medical reports. Um, He kind of observes her behaviour. And um, being a scientist himself, he immediately sets himself the task of well, if this is a virus, uh, maybe we can cure it. And that gives her hope for the first time that she might actually be able to get over this one day if he can if he can discover a cure. And there are an awful lot of obstacles on the road to potentially finding a cure. I think in terms of the relationships just there, I think it's it's kind of important to point out that it's unusual to have a situation where the lead character uses their boss as their ally and confidant. Yeah. And also, in the case of both Liv and Ravi and Liv and Clive, there is no and almost certainly never will be any kind of romantic entanglement that's ever going to take place. Yeah. It's not like in these other shows we were talking about earlier, like you know Lucifer and The Mentalist and Castle, where there's always this sexual tension between the feisty female cop and the maverick non you know, you know, well, non-cop sidekick <laughs> wizard-like character who is just placed there alongside them. Yeah, that's just never going to happen. This is like about people who are solving cases, and their relationships actually are quite true to the characters and, and are involved in driving the plot forward of this group of uh, people. It's not one of those shows where you have X number of characters, and there's a limited number of events and possible connections that can exist between them, so they exploit them with just three people. Yeah. it's a very nuance show in how it deals with both the individual characters and also the relationships that exist between them. Yeah, because the three of them, Liv, Clive and Ravi, they all have other relationships that come and go. But you you are you are spared the the seemingly never ending love triangle that develops in a lot of these other shows. 
where where you're right, where they they pair people off in every possible combination, in order to just continually keep these things going, and it's something that particularly other CW shows are a bit guilty yeah. of, particularly some of the CW DC shows, where sometimes you just think, come on, you're just drawing names out of a hat now and pairing <laughs> people up and seeing if you can develop some dramatic tension within the story. So it's it's really really nice that at the heart of it you have something that is a real friendship. And also a level of professional respect hmm. between those three characters who all work together in, in various capacities in that they are friends, but there is also a professional relationship between them. Right. So obviously season three is coming up and we don't want to give away too many like major spoilers for what's hmm. happening in seasons one and two. because We really think that you should try and watch those if you can yeah. and then, you know, and you know, really experience that. But I suppose we do have to talk broadly about what happens in season one and two because this is really about our anticipation for season three. Yeah. So, yeah, there are uh, obviously individual standalone episodes that take place in each uh, season. But there are some broader arcs that are really well thought out and plotted across runs of a couple of episodes, across whole um, seasons and actually between seasons. There's lots of plot points which do run throughout the series. And it's not a show which is separated into either a standalone episode or a mythology arc episode. There's a bit of everything in every in every one. Yeah. Um, so you do actually have to watch everything to see what's going on. And the plot does move forward. The overarching plot does move forward with every episode as well. So um, so why don't you explain a little bit about what uh, what's broadly going on in, in season one? Yeah, so the, the sort of main things that are happening in the background in season one, there's... Uh, Another zombie in town, this guy named Blaine, who is also a survivor of the party. Yeah. That's David Anders, who was in Heroes and Alias and various yeah. other shows, yeah. Yeah. Not with a dodgy British accent in this one, although he, he does occasionally find an excuse <laughs> to put it on when his character is drunk. <laughs> he used to be a sort of low-level criminal in a, a organised crime, um, dealing drugs, that kind of thing. And... Now that he finds himself to be a zombie, he decides to use this to start building his own criminal enterprise. So he has this uh, brilliant idea of going out, finding lots of rich people who live in Seattle, where it's set, turning them into zombies, and then charging them a fortune to basically deliver brains to them so that they can eat. It's the monthly brain pan, like $25,000 a month. Yeah. Yeah. With you know high class Michelin star style recipes, but it's 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 just brain that they're serving up really. So he he makes little uh, headquarters for himself in this butcher shop called Meat Cute. Ah, <laughs> too many puns, too many puns. <laughs> and um, his kind of shady dealings are in the background throughout season one. Yeah. So Liv gets her brains from the morgue, yeah, which she thinks is well. The most humane way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Blaine doesn't. He gets his brains by kidnapping and then killing uh, lots of local youths. Yeah, so um, people who are homeless or kids who are from sort of troubled homes who are going to go missing and no one is really going to care. Um, people are just going to assume that they've run away or something like that. He, he goes after people who aren't going to raise too many eyebrows, not going to end up on the front page of the paper. Uh, and use the butcher shop to uh, serve their brains up behind the facade of selling fancy meat. But of course he can't just do this without somebody getting onto this whole operation. Mm. And so um, there's one particular group of kids who were being supervised in some capacity by a character called Major Lillywhite, mm. um, who's like a, he's like a youth worker, isn't he? Yeah, and Liv's ex-fiancé. Yeah, and so he eventually, whilst trying to keep track of all the kids who he used to look after who are now going missing. He starts investigating that and he realises that, you know, it's not just one or two kids, but there are lots of these missing kids. He realises there's a, there's a much wider problem in the local sort of Seattle area and his investigations will, will actually lead him on to uncovering himself a little bit about what Blaine's doing. This idea that it's something to do with brains, although he's completely unaware that zombies exist, etc. Mm. It just seems like some weird, freaky cult which is involved in, <laughs> you know, somehow it links these kids who have been kidnapped with, you know, brains being found in Tupperware boxes and things like that. 
he becomes aware that there's clearly people involved in covering up what's going on uh existing in sort of the uh the higher ranks of the police force etc mm. um and his investigation ultimately kind of tracks the arc of that series which is uncovering this large conspiracy as he sees it and as he uncovers more he puts himself in greater danger and although Liv and Ravi are aware of his investigation and know that he's eventually going to work out what's going on they don't feel it's right for him to know that a zombies exist and b uh his ex-fiance Liv is one so they kind of let him do this on his own and see what happens but that leads major down a very dark road where he becomes very paranoid and no one believes him because he starts shouting about you know brains and zombies etc and it's it's a really complicated issue for his friends who don't want to obviously reveal that zombies exist but they also have to watch their friend be put through the ringer on uh, on a few occasions as well yeah and the other main story that's going on in the background that that lasts beyond season one into season two is this uh, energy drink company called Max Rager. Which is not Red Bull. Definitely not Red Bull. <laughs> or Relentless or any of those other ones. Max Rager, which uh, starts... They start to become aware that their energy drink may in some way have contributed to the existence of the zombie virus. Essentially, Ravi figures out quite early on that it was a combination of... Uh, special designer drug that was being dealt at the party the tainted utopium yeah and and <laughs> the best name for a drug <laughs> you're gonna come i mean it's good it's not one of those kind of wacky names yeah. it's the kind of thing which is like mm, that's kind of cool yeah and uh drinking max rager at the same time which has previously been known to make people flip out a little bit if they drank too much of it those two things combined suddenly created this zombie virus that that turned people into zombies so Max Rager is this giant company, very powerful, headed by this guy called Vaughan Du Clark, who is just one of the best villains. I mean, he's fantastic. Played by Stephen Weber. Yeah. Who, I think in comparison, who, especially to what's his face, David Wenham, who's in Iron Fist. Mm. You know, Vaughan Du Clark is a proper psychotic billionaire in charge of a company. Yeah. You know, David Wenham is, you know, his Harold Meacham is small fry in comparison. <laughs> Yeah, Vaughan Du Clark is superb, and but particularly the scenes that you get from time to time, where it's where it's him and Liv, it's it's just brilliant. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much about what happens, but you look forward to whenever his character is mm. going to be in the episode. Basically. It's like a guy who knows that people are onto him, mm. but he's in a position of tremendous power, and he knows that ultimately, whatever is going on, he knows that everything that's being investigated is probably true. But also he knows there'll never be any evidence for it. So he's just playing with the police all the time. And especially with Liv, who is a zombie and he gets a sense that that might be the case, etc. He he knows exactly what's going on and he knows he's untouchable. And there's that kind of arrogant, prickish mm. nature to him, which makes him a really fun villain to have uh, in the show. And he starts off as a relatively minor character i suppose i mean the max rager thing is there because initially there's a case involving uh, this group of sort of celebrities who are hired to do extreme sports mm. in a non red bull kind of way <laughs> um, and he appears a few times there he's being investigated but as the case being investigated it kind of links up with a reporter who is investigating the missing kids and it all starts all these pieces start coming together yeah. to make max rager like the big sort of corporate villain of uh, the first couple of seasons of iZombie. Yeah. And then as as you kind of move into season two as well, they bring in another sort of big villain hiding in the background. So Liv's roommate and oldest friend Peyton Charles is an assistant district attorney. And in season two... Very young for... for... <laughs> She's very young. It's one of those shows where you can get promotions at very young ages. Yeah. <laughs> So um, she gets put on this task force that is supposed to be taking down this crime lord called Mr. Boss. And and so you, that storyline comes into it in season two. Uh, where, so you, you've got another kind of uber villain 
lurking around. And and the great thing about a lot of these villains is that Blaine, Vaughan Clark, Mr. Boss, they're not necessarily all connected or even, you know, many of them never actually have a scene together, yeah. which is a shame in some ways. I would have loved to see a scene between between some of them. But it's it it never stands still as a show. It's it's not the kind of show that will, you know, present you a big mythology mystery in season one, episode one and say, okay, at the end of season five, if we make it that far, we're going to reveal who the killer of the person's family was or whatever it usually turns out to be. It's usually one of those on one of these shows. The Mentalist Castle, it was all that kind of thing. It it keeps moving forward. Interesting things keep developing in the plot all the time. It never makes you wait very long for big answers because it's got more up its sleeve. It's got more villains, more interesting things happening all the time. And so there are moments where you think, is this going to be a show where ultimately the big plot point is going to be for example major finding out that Liv is a zombie is that the is that the season ending thing you know is Clive you know doing the same thing is Peyton finding out and actually what's interesting is it's not a show about those kind of reveals Mm. those are a given you know it's almost like saying that people who know you well will eventually find these things out (laughs) it's about the fact that there are there are bigger arcs at work you know you I mean, it's it's odd. It's a show that is saying, look, this is a show about a a zombie who works in the morgue, who eats the brains of recently deceased people in order to help solve their murders. There's another show there, which is about the conspiracy, about the covering up of this zombie virus, which has been uh, released as a concoction between drinking this Max Rager energy drink and this tainted utopium. You know, there's also a story which is about the drug running that's that's mm. going on in the city and the crime aspect as well. Um, and actually all the characters are involved in different aspects of all these different plots, but they all have something to do and all these stories run parallel fashion mm. and they do largely get resolved, you know, throughout each season. It's not like there's one big mystery, like you say, at the very end. I mean, things do move forward and new mysteries are created and there are still some very very big picture broad things which are going to happen mm. but largely there's there's a lot happening on an episode by episode basis yeah and the there's a case of the week that they almost always have apart from maybe the season finales when they're you know wrapping up a lot of the big stuff but the, the case of the week is normally uh, someone gets brought into the morgue it's usually a murder victim or suspected murder victim or someone where they're not they're not sure how they died clive is investigating it in some way Liv eats the brains of the deceased person, starts to take on their, their personality and their mannerisms. And then together with Clive, the two of them go out, they start investigating. And then in the course of the investigation, certain things trigger these memories. So it could be a place that she's in where the person went to and she'll suddenly get the memory of them being in the place and seeing a particular thing. Or, or it could be you know, a, a shape or a colour or a movement or something that triggers something similar in the memories of the person whose brain she's eaten. And between the two of them, they they go out and investigate the crime. And it, it's so well written and it's so concisely written that you can do all of that, plus have multiple other storylines going on in the background. So you'll have... The story will completely just follow what's going on with Major, what's going on with Blaine, completely apart from everything that's going on with, with Liv in the case of the week. And it never feels rushed. Mm. The case never feels rushed. It never feels like they're cramming too much into an episode. It's, it's very, very cleverly done. Yeah, no character is wasted in this. They yeah. all have a lot to do on their own. It's nice when they come together, but it is strange to to see occasionally a moment where you realise that two characters haven't interacted for a few episodes. Yeah. Um, because they've been doing their own thing. And then it makes it more realistic when they hang certain reveals throughout the storyline because there's odd there's odd moments when you think well surely that character knows that already that character. then you realize these characters have been doing other things for a few episodes yeah so it does kind of ring true that you could hang the information throughout the series which makes it just more interesting it kind of you know it keeps attention going a little bit yeah and they pay so much attention even to the really minor characters so they're characters who are maybe only in a couple of episodes or a few scenes but it's really funny and they keep coming back. Like Johnny Frost. Johnny Frost, the weatherman. <laughs> or um, the sketch artist. Yeah. He's yeah. one of my favourite characters. Because <laughs> he, he just has interactions with... Well, initially, I mean, his main antagonist is, is Liv. Yeah. But 
it's weird because he's you know he appears maybe two three times mm. but he has moments which are obviously you know directly antagonistic with Liv but they're always in the presence of Clive or with Ravi which just adds a layer of you know a layer to the scene as well <laughs> where they're trying to work out exactly what's going on yeah and Liv is often on a brain or other when she encounters yeah. him so I think one of my favourite brains is the grumpy old man brain where she's, she's eating the brain of this, this guy who was found under his car where someone seems to have kicked the jack out and the car has crushed him. And he was his, his grumpy old man who everyone in the neighbourhood hated because he was antagonistic and miserable towards everyone that, that he met. Uh, and this is just a brilliant scene where the sketch artist, they've, they've already had bad interactions in the past and they bump into each other in the corridor and you can see that he's already pissed off because he doesn't like her, but she's on grumpy old man brain and it just makes the antagonism between them even better. It's some brilliant one-liners that you get from scenes like that. Yeah, it's got great storylines, great plots, great characters, etc. But I think the one thing that we found with iZombie is that it has this immense rewatchability mm. you can you know there's always something new when you watch it again 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 and i think what's really interesting is to kind of think about what makes it such a watchable and entertaining program i think a normal procedural uh, if it was a normal procedural would be really dull you know what would be the point of watching an episode again mm. where you know that you know so and so is the killer and that's how it's going to be um, resolved yeah. There's so much going on. So so what are the things which actually make it quite a distinctive show and a really uh, entertaining one as well? I, I think there isn't a line of dialogue that goes to waste. E everything has clearly been worked over again and again and again so that there's always something interesting or funny and filled with character to be said. Um, it, even in scenes which are relatively sort of inconsequential in terms of, you know, the scene is clearly there to move the plot forward in some way and in a lot of shows those scenes would just be rushed off people would say things would be a bit of exposition and then everyone would you know there'd be maybe one joke sucking at the end and then they would all go off but in eye zombie every every other line is something clever or witty or or, or just exactly the kind of thing that the character would say and the, and the characters are so rich you know it, even the supporting cast um like, for example, uh, in season two, you get this character called Dale Bozio who gets introduced. And she's an FBI agent who has come in to uh, investigate some bizarre disappearances of rich people in Seattle, which uh, the, the audience knows is, is linked to the fact that there are zombies, but the FBI doesn't know that there are <laughs> zombies. So uh, she comes in, starts working with Clive. The two of them um, eventually have this kind of romantic relationship together. But they've also got this brilliant working relationship between FBI agent and homicide detective. And even when they're just sitting around in the precinct talking about some of the other cops who are in the department, it's, it's just hilarious. And it, there's, there's no particular reason why it should be that funny. And in a show where less care was paid to it it wouldn't be funny because they would have just rushed those lines off and moved on. There's also very sort of naturalistic interactions between characters. Yeah. Little asides which just add a bit more depth to the, you know, it's weird. Yeah, I think like you say, it's their moments which add depth to the characters when most shows would just worry about adding depth to the plot. Yeah. You know, they, they want to just make these characters people who you know and you like and you care for and put them in interesting storylines but they're characters that you like. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because in season one, one of Clive's main personality traits was how kind of guarded he was yeah. about his personal life. He, he just w he didn't talk about it. You know, he would hang out in the morgue with Ravi and Liv and they would blabber on about their lives. And as soon as they asked him a question, he would be out of there. Yeah. He, he wasn't interested in sharing his personal life. And so when Dale gets introduced in season two, and you, you see as their relationship starts to, to blossom the audience gets to see more of his personality. Mm. You get to see what he's like when he isn't always on, you know, on, on a case yeah. or when he's away from the precinct. And the two of them together are such a, a good couple that it, it brings out the best in Clive as a character as well as Dale herself mm. being a really, really good character. Yeah, I think there are very few shows where, you know, on a second season, the characters have moved forward so much. Yeah. You know, Clive would still be the same, you know, the same 
maverick cop, <laughs> you know, who keeps himself very guarded, etc., for the whole run potentially in yeah. other ways. But yeah, I think it's 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 characters that are that are really three dimensional. They have lots going on, and I think his interactions with Dale, especially, like you say, I mean, they even the course of that second season, they appear and actually events towards the end of the season actually even start to change that dynamic as well even more so they're not content just to keep characters static so another really cool thing about i zombie is that they have a tremendously diverse cast in it as well um, which is good not just for it being a genre show but actually in terms of comparing it to almost any mainstream show on at the moment yeah, it's 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 managed to have a diverse cast and also avoid having any of the characters be obvious, particular cliches yeah. in the way that they have cast it. Yeah, and I think you know, it's it's nice because it's not done as a it's not done in a manner which is designed to give the showmakers a pat on the back. Mm. But it is kind of very interesting to watch a show in which you've got well, actually, even to have a female lead is still you know a really rare thing mm. on a TV show. But this goes well beyond that as well. I mean, you've got a British Asian dude, Rahul Kohli, plays Ravi, um, who's really funny in this program. Yeah. Um, I think on like his his CV, I think he was in like probably you know Casualty, a couple of other <laughs> things, and then all of a sudden he pops up in this. So no one had ever seen him before. Yeah. Uh, and then he he turns up and this is like you know one of the leads. He's fantastic in it. He's kind of got this. He's just a very caring but extremely cynical kind of character. <laughs> And I think what's interesting is that he's not in any way the stereotypical Asian character, which you get on shows, you know. I I mean that in terms of, like, the Big Bang Theory and things like that. <laughs> yeah. um, the fact he's a British actor who's allowed to keep a British accent, and there's yeah. a plot behind that whole thing as well. It's not like a forcing, it's just the character who he is. Yeah, and it's, it's so nice to have, you know... A, a female lead character who has a love life in the show and it's an important part of her life as it would be for anyone's life but it's not the central point of the show and it's not and her defining characteristic it's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not her, her defining characteristic is that she's a zombie doctor mm. it's not what defines her and it's it's not what constantly occupies the show yeah, i think what's nice as well is that again it's a show that doesn't take itself too seriously as well mm. so there are lots of really meta moments in it um and a lot of them do relate to the kind of rob thomas universe of shows as well yeah so there are and some nice callbacks to uh, veronica mars both in terms of like you know snippets of dialogue where i think you know once Liv says something like a long time ago we used to be friends where she's talking to somebody else yeah which is a lyric from the uh, the music that played um in the opening of uh, veronica mars and there are lots of actors who are in veronica mars who show up uh, in this as well, which is nice if you're a fan of Veronica Mars to see those same people turning up again in new roles in this. Um, that's really cool. There's also a very nice uncredited cameo from Kristen Bell that you have to be uh, quick to catch yeah. in one episode. But her voice is so distinctive. Yeah, yeah. It's just a yeah, it's a voice cameo. That's all we'll say. <laughs> um, yeah, you also get these um, sort of recurring jokes about the other Rob Thomas. <laughs> Because obviously the guy who you know co-produces and co-writes the show, his name is Rob Thomas. There is another more famous Rob Thomas, which is the uh, the lead singer of Matchbox Twenty. Yeah. Who, uh, if you don't know Matchbox Twenty, then you probably know the song "Smooth" by Santana, and he did the vocals on that, which is like, very famous. So most people probably know Rob Thomas. <laughs> most people probably know Rob Thomas. They, they were even they were making Rob Thomas jokes in Veronica Mars. I remember mm. that. And, and they keep doing that here. And we won't spoil the season two finale, but it's it's the ultimate of all meta Rob Thomasy jokes. Yeah. In that massive genre <laughs> of Rob Thomasy jokes. A select few people like those. But uh, yeah, no, no, I think it's uh, it's really fun just to kind of play around so much during season two with all these things. And at the end, I think season two finale just completely explodes in all kinds of things. Yeah. I have to say the one really cool thing about the season two finale is it really is like uh, of the caliber, especially if you view the um, the last two episodes as one long episode. Yeah, it really is like an hour and a half, like proper intense zombie movie. Yeah, it transcends what budget it has on a TV show to really produce something special. I think it's a really really good uh, season finale. Yeah. 
uh, moving on from the actual season two finale. I mean, we're not going to give too much away about that, but the reason why we thought it'd be fun to talk about iZombie in this episode was because season three is starting. Yeah, if 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 you've been convinced enough by the last forty five minutes or so of iZombie propaganda, then uh, go and watch seasons one and two because we are now going to speculate about season three, and there will inevitably be some spoileriness for seasons one and two. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so the the trailer which has just been released for season three clearly shows scenes which uh, take place directly after the end of season two. Yeah. So this is not going to be a six months later situation. Um, it's clear that the events that take place are going to be um, addressed immediately. And I think those events are pretty, pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what you have is a situation where this private military contractor, Fillmore Graves, has now taken over the Max Rager operation but it's been revealed that this uh, operation is actually run by zombies who have the intention of turning uh, Seattle into the what the the zombie homeland or whatever or the yeah. or the or the center of you know of uh, zombie society and i think it's interesting that uh, they're now going to clearly bring in this init- well so if you're a fan of buffy it's kind of like the initiative almost it's kind of military yeah. operation who are very aware of what's going on they're clearly going to be a major plot point in season three. I think it's going to be interesting to see how they address this whole issue. There's something, I think, to do with how Liv views this operation. I think potentially you've got the question of how all the other characters deal with the fact that they now are all, to some extent, aware of the zombie situation. Some of them, in fact, are zombies. And now they're aware that the zombie virus outbreak is not just confined to a few people who were scratched by uh, people who attended the boat party Mm. there's clearly a much bigger cohort of zombies who have now infiltrated much bigger parts of society yeah and we can only speculate how that ended up being the case because at the at the moment the the only zombie virus outbreak that we are aware of was the boat party Mm. um so so whether someone involved in that scratched someone who scratched someone who 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 scratched someone at this this military firm i mean i i suppose all these questions are going to be answered to some extent Um, they can't all just be max rager and tainted utopian there must be something else going on here which you know which has made this thing uh more prevalent than we had any idea of yeah and it's it's a good example of how plot is moving forward because we had two brilliant seasons of Max Rager as one of the big villainous things going on behind the scenes, but the show is moving forward. And as as it has to, you can't just keep making the same... Well, some some shows do keep making the same <laughs> show over and over again for five years, but not iZombie. And the other way in which it's it can't ever really be the same again is that Clive now knows about zombies. Yeah. And that's going to completely change his relationship with Liv in terms of the way he views the visions that she's getting and yeah. how they're going to work together. Yeah, so as a, you know, as a spoiler, um, so Peyton, Liv's friend, found out uh, in the penultimate episode of season one, uh, Major found out in the uh, finale of season one, now Clive knows at the end of season two. There are a couple of people who don't know, so Liv's family don't know, mm-hmm. but they've kind of been lost in the in the story and it's unclear if they'll return. But all the core characters now know, and it's kind of unclear, you know, how they're all going to react to this news. Especially somebody like Clive, whose whole belief system was turned on its head. I think in the season two finale. Yeah, and is Dell going to come back? I, I really hope Dell comes yeah. back. It would be a shame if we don't see her again. Yeah, because it was a so it was an interesting way to turn Clive and Dale's relationship on its head. It was heading in a really good direction, I think, for both characters, and I think. Dale's tenacity in this case was completely turned on its head when she realised that Clive had a hand in making this case kind of fall apart so mm-hmm. he could protect Liv and Major's zombie secret. Um, I think it kind of will add a interesting level of tension to the whole thing if Dale does return, mm. whether her feelings for Clive cloud how she reacts or if she remains 100% professional and decides that she wants to find out what's going on. I mean, ultimately, she's going to find out that there are zombies as well. 
but that creates this crazy problem where suddenly then the FBI would know that there are zombies. So whether she chooses to keep that secret or not is odd because she did have such a strong um, professional allegiance to being in the FBI. So I don't think she'll be another character who just drops away from that in order to be part of this zombie storyline in Seattle. Yeah. And it, the other big question for season three is, uh, is Blaine's amnesia real? <laughs> and what we're going to, we're going to give you a piece of paper and I want you to write down whether or not you think his amnesia is real and I'm going to write down whether I think his amnesia is real and we're going to fold them up and put them away until such time as it actually gets revealed one way or another on the show and then we're going to open them up in a future episode. <laughs> the tension is killing me. <laughs> Stakes have never been higher. <laughs> Right, I'm gonna like gonna entertain yourselves while we write this. You're writing a lot down. I just wrote I just wrote either yes or no. You can't write a whole kind of explanation <laughs> of what's going on, it's ridiculous. It's fine. I was just I was just giving it a bit oh, of yeah. drama. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good one. Um Okay, uh right, give me yours. And I'm gonna put them uh in the drawer in this box at the back <laughs> just in case yeah just in case yeah oh well, no, exactly. hang on. there's some mario badges in there i can't put them in there this is riveting podcasting <laughs> right i'm putting them underneath that box ah the old underneath the box yes yeah, classic hiding hiding place yeah underneath the box underneath the list of ongoing comics that we were getting uh yeah um to be uh to be continued. Best not to do that uh, on the desk drawer, which is underneath the microphone. <laughs> so the, the other thing that will be interesting to watch them address is um, obviously during season two, the reason why Dale comes to Seattle and the FBI are interested is that there's been a bunch of rich people disappearing. And uh, what we know is that all those rich people were zombies. The FBI doesn't know there were zombies. They think that there's some sort of kill the rich nutter serial killer going around killing these people. The chaos killer. Yeah, the chaos killer. But what we know is that they were zombies and they're not dead. They were actually uh, abducted and frozen. And at the end of season two, they're very much thawed out and alive. What we don't know is how Fillmore Graves are going to deal with this problem because basically they now have them I suppose at the end they've taken over the Max Rager building and are they just going to let them go are they going to let all these rich people who were thought to be the victims of a serial killer just wander back into society because they're going to want to go back to mm. society but would the police turn up to interview them would someone try and give them a medical to make sure they're okay because if they do they're going to find out that there's something wrong with or them or are they going to use them as like extra zombies yeah <laughs> Maybe they want more zombies. They'll be like, yeah, got more zombies. Or maybe they'll use the fact, or maybe they'll find a way to get them to re-infiltrate their original lives. Then they have these people with immense wealth and power yeah. who are actually zombies going back into society. Yeah. You see? Yeah. Part so, of the Fillmore Graves plan. Yeah. Yeah, so so what do you think is going to happen with Mr. Boss, So that, you know, that big Seattle crime kingpin who thought he had killed Blaine um, but is now fully aware from the fact that his own goons have been uh, killed he now knows that the blame's alive what's gonna happen there yeah so as far as we know mr boss doesn't know there are zombies yeah. and is therefore going to be thoroughly confused by the fact that not only is blame still alive but has managed to take out all of his men basically um i i don't know if he's going to continue just being in the dark over zombies obviously whether or not the task force that was trying to take him on it's going to get picked the up again. The Mr. Boss Task Force. Yeah. Cause it, it was disbanded at one point. But Peyton is still around. Yeah. And now the DA is back. Because he was one of the chaos killer victims uh, who is now defrosted. So if he comes back, is he going to want to carry on taking on Mr. Boss? But it would actually be kind of cool, though, if they keep him completely unaware of the zombie thing. Because then you actually have potentially another season with a well-established antagonist who is just a crime lord. Yeah. It'll keep the show footed firmly in the procedural camp as well as being this 
now wider show about this impending zombie apocalypse which is about to take place. And to keep that footing might be quite important if there are a few characters who are still unaware of zombies but still acting as antagonists to uh, Liv and Clive and Ravi. Yeah, and of course Scott E is still out there somewhere too. Scott E, Donnie, which one was the... Donnie, yeah, because Scott E's in the uh, psychiatric hospital. So Donnie is the one... Who's who is taken over Blaine's operation? Yeah, yeah. So, so he he's still alive, but whereabouts unknown. Yeah. Um, but presumably still wanting to continue his criminal enterprises yeah. as well. And also, there. I mean, I'm not sure they're ever going to go back to it. But didn't at the end of season one, or near the end of season one, there's an episode where isn't it revealed that his brother, who was in the psychiatric hospital, Scotty, had a videotape from the boat party. Yeah, which yeah. existed, which was passed on to apparently some local journalist, but that was never really picked up on. So there are there are dangling pieces of evidence about the presence of zombies, uh, which must be in the possession of TV stations, etc. Honestly, I think it's all fake, and they're not going to do anything about it. But that was never really resolved. Yeah, and what's going on with Blaine's dad? Because he's in prison break. <laughs> <laughs> that that whole storyline just kind of ended yeah. and other events overtook it yeah. and now I guess if Blaine does have amnesia he doesn't know that he won't even remember his dad it will be interesting to see what his dad is going to do next if he's still around, I presume he is I presume he is still doing something I mean to be honest his storyline did peter out Yeah. but he did end with one of the best episode endings <laughs> of any TV show ever, which is the Les Miserables mm. scene, which you have to watch. Um, it's basically, uh, um, it's set to, was it One More Day? Yeah. From Les Miserables. And it's all these plot lines converging in in triumph <laughs> as uh, Blaine gets his revenge on his dad. There's a potential source of the original boat party utopian being found after lots of searching for multiple episodes and there's this kind of wonderful sense of triumph that builds throughout the episode as they figure out you know that there may be a way forward to to work out how they can make a new a cure it but it's a very kind of well choreographed very extravagant giant scene which takes place and it's just a really fun ending but it's the last we really see of Blaine's dad isn't it yeah because he uh, you know Blaine gets his revenge and you just see the chief and is it candy yeah about to uh torture him um, <laughs> but that but the outcome of that is never revealed yeah you know? yeah and and the other thread that's left hanging i guess is natalie yeah yeah so of all the chaos killer victims um who get defrosted one of them uh, was from natalie who major had a a, a very in-depth chat with mm. before he put her in the freezer with her full knowledge and consent that she was going to get frozen and she said to him look i do not want you to defrost me unless there is a cure i'm sick of being a zombie i hate this life so you know fine uh put me in the freezer and when you've got a cure wake me up so all all of these chaos killer victims have now been defrosted but natalie's not there yeah so all, all we know is that uh one of the other defrosted chaos killer victims tells them that uh they saw her getting led away by a guard somewhere but we don't know why or where she might have gone. Or, but we could be fairly certain that Major is going to try and find her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because he's looking at the end. He's asking everyone yeah. where she is. And I suppose it's interesting because the these kidnapped, thawed out zombies were being used by Max Rager as test subjects for a cure. Mm. And so it's kind of intriguing to know whether that's going to be um, played up as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there are. There are quite a few things that I think are unresolved. I think it's still unclear what the overall arc of this season is going to be. Mm. Um, it's going to be something to do with Liv trying to work out whether she wants to be part of the Fillmore Graves operation or whether she wants to keep doing her thing. There's probably coupling that with how her relationships are going to change from now on. How, Like you say, how Clive is going to view all these things. But one thing's for sure, I think, which is that, uh, you know, iZombie knows how to surprise and I think it's going to be a very interesting season and although they haven't announced it yet I do hope that you know this isn't the last one yeah fingers toes everything crossed that it gets renewed for another season yeah 
Right, so that's it for episode 14, our preview of the upcoming season of iZombie and our feelings about it and how excited we are to see it coming back next time, episode 15. Yes. <laughs> what was the 15th James Bond film? Don't look that up. Oh, it must, it must have been the first Timothy Dalton one. Whichever Ooh, that one was, was it Licence to Kill or The Living Daylights? Uh, okay. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? If ever there's a question, which is, oh, was it, was it The Living Daylights or was it Licence to Kill? If that's the question you're asking, there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA. Or there's a Facebook group, uh, Time for Cakes and Ale. There's our website, timeforcakesandale.com. Uh, so please drop us a line, we'd really love to hear from anyone uh, what you think about the show, if there's any topics you think we should cover in a future show. And what your favourite iZombie brain is. Yes, yes, I think mine is still Grumpy Old Liv. Mm, I think mine is possibly the uh, Vigilante superhero one. Oh, from Cape Town. Cape Town. Yeah. I don't know why, it's got some good lines in that mm. one. Oh, and the Magician one. But only because I think uh, Rowie's response to it is uh, ridiculous. <laughs> So uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.